Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 36, 1 Samuel, chapter 22. It's characteristic of the historical books of the Old Testament that we'll see the God principles laid out for us in Torah brought to life application in a variety of cases and circumstances. Now for me personally, this is further evidence that believers need to begin at the beginning when studying God's words. Otherwise, we skip right over the establishment of the basic divine laws and foundational principles and we go right to the circumstances. By doing so, we come up with all sorts of misguided conclusions as to what the circumstances teach and command us. Because we prefer to ignore the ones clearly given in Scripture in favor of ones that better fit our theological and current cultural agendas. It's not unlike a citizen who is willfully ignorant of our civil and criminal laws and who is greatly surprised when he or she undertakes some sort of action that results in arrest or a lawsuit against them. Only too late do they discover through a legal expert, a lawyer, that they had behaved, had, that had they behaved responsibly, had they first taken the time to examine the laws and the applicable codes and consider their plain application, maybe now these costly mistakes could have been avoided. The four kingdom books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are, are overflowing with examples of circumstances that can only truly be understood in the light of the Torah. And especially now that we've entered the era of David. We must also incorporate into the unveiling of redemption history the several psalms that overlap and interlace directly with specific biblical events that are the impetus for David's outpouring of praise to God and for, for petition for God's help and deliverance from danger. Therefore, we're going to take the time today to examine certain psalms that are known with certainty to pertain to certain things that we'll read about here in 1 Samuel. Now last week, we ended with David fleeing from Gibeah, which was Saul's headquarters, to Nob, where the priesthood resided that <coughs> was recognized <coughs> excuse me, as most legitimate, at least to the northern tribal coalition. And then when at Nob, David acquired the food and weapon that he had come for, he quickly left for Philistine territory, specifically the city of Gath. And why he thought he would be accepted and even safer in the province of the Philistines has elicited substantial speculations because the Holy Scriptures don't record David's thoughts on this matter. But they do record David's state of mind. Apparently, to his surprise, when David immediately became a prisoner 
upon his arrival in Gath. And we find that recorded in Psalm 56. So open your Bibles to Psalm 56. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 844. And how do we know that this happened when he went to Gath? Well, let's begin reading. For the leader set to the silent dove in the distance by David, a michtam, when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Pretty definitive. Show me favor, God. For people are trampling me down. All day they fight and they press on me. Those who are lying in wait for me would trample on me all day. For those fighting against me are many. Most high, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, I praise his word. In God, I trust. I have no fear. What can human power do to me? All day long, they twist my words. They're only thoughts to harm me. They gather together and hide themselves, spying on my movements, hoping to kill me. Because of their crime, they cannot escape. In anger, God, strike down the peoples. You have kept count of my wanderings. Store my tears in your water skin. Aren't they already recorded in your book? Then my enemies will turn back on the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, I praise His word. In Adonai, I praise His word. In God, I trust. I have no fear. What can mere humans do to me? God, I have made vows to you. I will fulfill them with thank offerings to you. For you rescued me from death. You kept my feet from stumbling so that I can walk in God's presence in the light of life. We're not going to study this psalm per se. I just want to point out that we see a definite prayer pattern in David's words that's recorded for us so that we can follow it. When David is in the midst of trouble and danger, like here in Psalm 56, he is shown to cry out to the Lord, plead his case, and ask the Lord to deliver him. Often David is very specific about what he wants to occur. Further, he expresses absolute trust in God, acknowledges God's immutable ability to rescue, implying that if God does not rescue him, it's by divine choice, not by any lack of capacity. And David intersperses praise for Jehovah throughout. It's so important that we remember that David always leaves room for God's sovereignty to reign. God might choose not to deliver. God might decide to deliver in a manner or a time frame entirely different than David hopes for in he envisions. David hopes that by being obedient to God prior to these trying events that God will see David's righteousness and take that into account. 
The point is that a God pattern is presented for us, but not a God formula. David didn't present us with a formula or a a spiritual recipe that if we follow it, we're assured of achieving our goals and wishes. There is no biblical template to which God has obligated himself such that if we perform it well enough, then God is unable to deny us our petitions. You know, it concerns me today when I hear of people assuming that if they're anointed with oil or if they they follow certain verses applicable to healing or if by some unknown measure they exhibit sufficient personal faith, their ills will assuredly be miraculously curbed because God has no choice but to do it. And if it doesn't happen, then God or their faith in God has failed them. You know, many people have walked away from the church for just this reason. David always makes it clear that he is ready to accept God's sovereign decision. And if that decision means his own death, then he'll go to death praising God. The advent of Christ didn't change this principle. As Yeshua was but hours from an excruciating execution on the cross and well aware of what was coming, he bent over in agony in the garden of Gethsemane and he prayed like this as recorded in Luke 22.42 Father, if you are willing... Please take this cup from me. Still, let not my will but yours be done. He prayed like David. Yeshua asked to have this cup, this agonizing death that awaited him, taken away. Yeshua dreaded it. He didn't want to go through what seemed to be inevitable. And he essentially asked, if he could possibly be relieved from it. But only if the Father willed it. The Father willed otherwise. And we're all here today as God's redeemed because God said no to His Son. No. And because Yeshua was willing to accept the no. Well, now that the door of escape to the west, to Philistia, had been closed on David, he journeys back to Judah, but only briefly. Turn your Bibles to Samuel, 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22. That is page 323 in the complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read it all. 1 Samuel 22. David left there and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and the rest of his father's family heard of it, they went down there to see him. 
Then all the people in distress, in debt, for embittered, began gathering around him, and he became their leader. There were about 400 of them. David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab and said to the king of Moab, Please, let my father and mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. He presented them to the king of Moab, and they lived with him as long as David remained in his stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Don't stay in the stronghold. Leave. Go to the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Heret. Shaul heard that David and the men with him had been located. Shaul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the hill with his spear in his hand, all his servants standing around him. And Saul said to his servants standing around him, Listen, you men of Benjamin, is Jesse's son going to give any of you fields and vineyards? Is he going to make you all commanders of thousands and hundreds? Is this why you've conspired against me? Why none of you told me when my son went in league with Jesse's son? None of you is concerned about me. Otherwise you would have told me that my son had incited my servant to become my enemy as he is now. Then Dweg the Edomi, who had been put in charge of Saul's servants, answered, I saw Jesse's son come to Nob. And to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. He consulted Adonai for him. He gave him food. He gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. The king sent to summon Ahimelech, the Kohen, the son of Ahitub, along with all of his father's family, the priests and Nob. And all of them went to the king. And Saul said, Listen here, you son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why do you conspire against me? you and Jesse's son, by giving him bread and sword and consulting God for him. You helped him rebel against me and become my enemy, which he now is. Achimelech answered the king, Is there anyone among all your servants more trustworthy than David? He's the king's son-in-law. He carries out your every request. Your household honors him. I didn't start consulting God for him just today. Heaven forbid. The king shouldn't accuse me or my father's family of anything. Your servant knows absolutely nothing at all about any of this. But the king said, You must die. You all your father's family. Then the king told the guards standing around him, Go around and kill the priests of Adonai because they're siding with David. Because they knew he was escaping, yet they didn't tell me. But the king's servants refused to lift their hands against the priests of Adonai. So the king said to Doeg, You, go around and kill the priests. Doeg the Edomite went around and fell on the Kohanim. That day he killed 85 persons wearing linen ritual vests. He also attacked Nob the city of the priests with the sword. He put to the sword both men and women, children and babies, cattle, donkeys, sheep. One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Aviatar, escaped and he fled to join David. And Aviatar told David that Saul had killed the priests of Adonai. And David said to Aviatar, I knew it. That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would tell Saul. I caused the death of every person in your father's family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. 
Because the one who is seeking my life seeks yours too. You'll be safe with me. David departs from Philistine Gath, which is here, and he goes to the cave of uh, cave of Ajalom, which is right up in here. It's in Judah. It's about a ten mile journey. All right. And it lies about halfway in between Gath and this hometown of Bethlehem. Now, Adulam means closed-in place, and it was a known fortress city located in what's called the Shephelah region, or the coastal plain. Now, quickly, the word reaches his family in Bethlehem, and they're told to come there and join him. Now, it wasn't for a visit. Saul wasn't about to let David's family be at peace, what with David now his archenemy. David's father and mother, and probably brothers and their families too, were in grave danger, so they came in hopes of protection. Now in addition, 400 others who knew of David came. Now that wasn't a matter of rebellion against Saul. They didn't come to form an army. Rather, they were people whose lives were in ruin due to Shaul's policies and the way he ran his government. You know, it should be obvious enough by now that the king of Israel ran his kingdom the same way the other petty kings around the Middle East ran theirs. All that mattered was his own power, his own wealth, that his tribal dynasty would be established and protected. The Torah laws that were supposed to be Israel's constitution and there for the benefit of the Israelites, well, those were set aside. And so we see that the people who came to David were those who were ish masok, men in hard-pressed situations. And under the oppression of a nasha, a creditor, a moneylender. These people were mar nefesh, bitter in soul or spirit. This same term, mar nefesh, was used of the childless Hannah, who eventually bore Samuel. Now, just kind of picture the poor and oppressed commoners of Yeshua's day, living under the pagan conditions imposed upon them by Rome and coming in droves to this rabbi from Nazareth to hear words of comfort, perhaps of even a way out. They were the Mar Nefesh of that era, just as what we're reading about here in 1 Samuel 22. So here in this setting of hiding out in a cave, David penned another psalm. And for the sake of connecting Scripture to Scripture, let's read it. That's Psalm 57. Open your Bibles to Psalm 57. And again, how do we know this occurred when he had fled to that cave? Look at the first verse. For the leader set to do not destroy by David a miktam when he fled from Saul into the cave. 
Show me favor, God. Show me favor. For in you I have taken refuge. Yes, I will find refuge in the shadow of your wings. Until the storms have passed. I call to God the Most High, to God who is accomplishing His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me when those who would trample me down mock me. God will send His grace and His truth. I'm surrounded by lions. I'm lying down among people breathing fire, men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongues sharp-edged swords. Be exalted, God, above heaven. May Your glory be all over the earth. They prepared a snare for my feet, but I'm bending over to avoid it. They dug a pit ahead of me, but they fell into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, God, steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my glory. Awake, lyre and lute. I will awaken the dawn. I will thank you, Adonai, among the peoples. I will make music to you among the nations. For your grace is great. All the way to heaven and your truth all the way to the skies. Be exalted, God, above heaven. May your glory be over all the earth. Here again is the pattern of crying out to the Lord and at the same time praising Him. There's a lot less fear and anxiety present in Psalm 57 as he was hiding in the cave of Adullam than when in Psalm 56 he'd just been taken into custody by the Philistines. There's a general danger. He is on the run from King Saul. But there's not an immediate or specific danger. Saul's Saul's soldiers aren't surrounding his, his place of refuge. They're not out there waiting in ambush. He comments that even though his enemies are lurking about, the Lord has helped him to avoid their snare. He has a kind of, of peace, a calm that, that covers over him like a soft garment despite a very uncertain future. He feels the Lord's presence. He senses the Lord's providence in his life and he's comforted by it. Well, next we have a transition. As David leaves the cave of Adullam for Moab, taking his elderly parents with him. Now, he first tried escaping towards the west... And it didn't work out. So now he heads towards the east to a place called Mitzpah of Moab. This simply means an overlook or a watchtower. This tells us that David crossed over the Jordan, probably up here somewhere, probably around Jericho. And he went up to this fortress city in Moab that overlooked the Dead Sea and the Jordan River Valley. Actually, this would have been in territory formerly governed by Reuben and Gad. It appears that Moab had regained at least some areas of land they controlled before Joshua and the Israelites showed up. Now David felt, apparently, that even though Israel was a long-time enemy of Moab, that there was some customary right of sanctuary available for him and his parents in Moab. Now, there's been a lot of conjecture on this issue. 
just as also to why David would think that Akish would accept him. But the predominant thought is that it was because his great-grandmother Ruth was from Moab. In any case, David reckoned that his parents would be safer from Saul in Moab than anywhere else he could take them. And apparently the king of Moab welcomed David and his family and indeed afforded them sanctuary. Well, David tells the king of Moab that he'd like for his parents to stay there until he knows what God's going to do with him. Now, interestingly, (coughs) whereas David's usual reference to God is Yehovah, here when he's addressing the king, he uses the term Elohim, which is a general term for any god. Now, I suspect it was out of respect for the king of Moab who called Chemosh his god. Well, chapter 22 moves very rapidly. It jumps over significant blocks of time. Thus, in verse 4, we're told that David and his parents lived in Moab for an unspecified period. However, a prophet named Gad approached David and told him that Jehovah didn't want him living in Moab. Instead, he ought to come back to Judah. Now, who exactly this prophet Gad was and where he came from is left up in the air. Probably, he was from Samuel's school of prophets in Naot. And for some reason, maybe at Saul's direction, uh, rather Samuel's direction. Gad came and attached himself to David. Now, prophets usually attach themselves to kings. David was no king. And there's no hint that he envisioned himself as the king-in-waiting. But from a spiritual aspect, he was already God's anointed king. And Samuel may have understood that. And so he felt compelled to provide David with a prophet so that he could receive God's oracle as he needed it. Well, Gad tells David the Lord doesn't want him to seek refuge in a foreign land, depending on foreigners as a barrier between him and King Saul. David had fled west to the Philistines and they had kicked him out. Now he was in the east and God was kicking him out. You know, I have to say, I've had that same feeling that David must have had about now. There's a situation I don't want to face, a place I don't want to be, a task I don't want to perform, but my every attempt to escape it is frustrated. And looking back, it could have been nothing less than the Father blocking my exits, directing me back into the fray, to learn something valuable or to play a role in his plan even though I may never fully understand what that role was. Apparently Gad faithfully served David for a number of years. We read of him in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 9 where it tells us that Gad served as David's seer. Thus Gad was given the gift of receiving divine knowledge of the future as a legitimate prophet of God. It also means that in time David had a court of prophets who brought the various aspects of Jehovah's words and instructions to David. Well, 
David obeys the Lord's instructions through the prophet Gad and he returns to Judah to a place called the forest of Hereth. Nobody knows where that place is exactly. In verse 6, the scene makes this dramatic shift now back to King Saul where we will learn that David and his men's whereabouts had been discovered. Shaul was in Gibeah, which was his home, his hometown. He was sitting under Tamarisk, an Eshel tree, on a Ramah, a hilltop. This was a place where the king customarily visited and deliberated and met with his men. And here we again see that the spear, a weapon of war and death, was in his hand. I dare say he was seldom seen without it because it had become his scepter. It had become his symbol of his personal authority and his character. Now as a note, depending on what your Bible says, what Bible you use, you may see the word Ramah capitalized. Meaning that it, in your Bible it's being translated as a proper noun. So there is this confusing verbiage that says Saul was at a place with the formal name of Ramah, but also this place was Gibeah. This is nonsensical. Okay? The village of Ramah was Samuel's home. That's not where Saul is meeting with his men. Rather, this just means Ramah like in a hilltop. In general, the hilltop was in Gibeah. Well, the narrative says that Saul's servants were there with him. These aren't house servants. These are high-ranking members of his court or perhaps a war council. And Saul is doing some politicking. Apparently these men, while loyal to Saul, don't see any conflict and still holding David in high regard. And this was just unacceptable to the king. So Saul begins his arm-twisting with these words. Listen up, you men of Benjamin. What he, what he actually said was, Shema Ben-Yamini, or hear and obey, you Benjamites. He was trying to persuade, but he was also speaking from a position of authority. He wasn't pleading with them to listen. He was insisting that they accept and obey what he's about to tell them. But also notice that this council consisted only of men from Saul's own tribe, Benjamin. Those men would have been the most naturally loyal to Saul because they also had the most to gain from being a member of from from, from the king being a member of their own tribe. It's also likely that other clans and tribes had started to pull away from Saul a bit due to his insatiable desire to lord over them and to behave in risky and irrational ways. Saul's inexplicable hatred of David undoubtedly played a role in all this. Had they known that God had designated David as the king in waiting, they may have felt differently about the situation and clung closer to Saul, actually. After all, 
Why would the Northern Tribal Coalition want a Southerner, a Judahite, to rule over them? So Saul uses the customary ways of tribalism to his advantage. He tells his fellow Benjamites that although they may have some hidden thoughts about David becoming their king, they need to think again. Is the son of Jesse, a Judahite, going to give land and power and authority to Benjamites? Is he going to confiscate fields and vineyards and then turn them over to anybody other than close family members and members of his own ruling tribe? That's Saul's argument. The men listen intently. You know what? Saul's telling them the truth. That's the truth. It was fully usual that the tribe of the man who ruled would receive great benefit from one of their own being in charge. In fact, it would have been hard to imagine it otherwise. Thus, it would be to their detriment to continue their support of David. But then, Saul takes another step. And he accuses them of being co-conspirators because they didn't inform him about the agreement his son Jonathan had made with David. Now Saul's suspicion is now reaching extreme levels. There's no reason why these men would have known anything about Jonathan and David's dealings, but it doesn't matter. Because Saul's purpose is to make them feel guilty so that they will do what he's about to ask of them. Even more, King Saul says that David's now risen up against him. He's become an enemy. Of course, this is a complete fabrication. It's Saul whose paranoia has gotten the best of him. And he's tried numerous times to kill the fully loyal and perplexed David. But verse 9 reveals that Doeg the Edomite, who was at Nob when David came and received the five loaves of showbread and and Goliath's sword from the high priest, well, he's also present at King Saul's council meeting in Gibeah. Now, this non-Hebrew informer takes advantage of Saul's suspicions of his Benjamite brothers and says that he just happened to be there the day David fled to Nob. And he tells Saul that he personally witnessed the high priest Ahimelech consult with God for David as well as give him food and Goliath's sword. Naturally, the point of this exercise was for Doeg to appear valuable and loyal to the king as opposed to these other men of the council who Saul now doubted. We find that the term Edomite was used three times in this episode, undoubtedly to cement the point that it was a foreigner who was about to betray David and do mass murder on Saul's behalf. The king summons the high priest, Ahimelech, and calls him the son of Ahituv. Saul had a penchant for calling someone not by their proper name, but according to their family line. Actually, this was a very ominous sign. What it indicated was that Saul saw individuals who posed a possible threat to his throne as simply part of an entire family 
who would also need to be held accountable. In Machiavelli's famous book, The Prince, he explains that it's just a practical matter. That if one who takes the throne away from another expects to hang on to that throne, he had better kill the king and all of his family. Otherwise, he's going to spend the rest of his days looking over his shoulder. Sooner or later, some descendant of that deposed king is going to feel aggrieved, vengeful, and even entitled to try and wrest the throne back for the family name. Saul accuses Ahimelech of aiding and abetting an enemy of the state. It was one thing to give David food and a weapon, but to inquire of God for David seems to have been a particular irritant to Saul. It's interesting that Saul didn't say, inquire of Yehovah, but rather to inquire of Elohim. Elohim just being a generic word again for any god. But the implication is not merely that the high priest prayed with David or had some kind of ritual ceremony for David but rather that the high priest inquired to the Lord on behalf of David so that David would know how to proceed in his rebellion against Saul. Ahimelech naturally understanding that this was Saul's meaning answers that as far as he knew, David was a trustworthy servant of the king. In fact, David was even a family member of the king. A son-in-law married to Saul's daughter Michal. Even more, David's reputation was that anything the king asked of him was carried out in the most loyal manner. Bottom line, the high priest was defending David and at the same moment claiming his own innocence. Ahimelech was answering Saul's questions with a clear conscience and was probably shocked at all these accusations. But in his deluded state, The king of Israel sees conspiracy behind every rock. And notice how in verse 15, Ahimelech perfectly understands the repercussions of Saul's not-so-subtle message of lumping all of Ahimelech's family in with whatever phony charge was trumped up against Ahimelech himself. I know nothing of any of this, Ahimelech truthfully pledges. The king was having none of it. The lives of others meant nothing to King Saul anymore. Completely absent of God's light and guidance, Saul has turned to the dark side in total. Even if his suspicions were unfounded, It was easier for Saul to go ahead and just execute judgment than to worry about the consequences. So he pronounces the death sentence upon the high priest as well as his whole family. And understand now, this wasn't just Ahimelech's family. It was his father's entire family who were condemned. You know, it's hard to overstate what an amazing turn of events we have here. The king of Israel 
has just ordered the elimination of the priesthood. Not because they violated the Torah or were derelict in their duties to the people of Israel or because maybe they had offended Jehovah in some serious breach of trust but because they showed mercy to someone that Saul and his paranoia and uncontrollable hatred has now deemed an enemy. Saul turns to the men of the council and he instructs them, Go out and kill, execute the high priest and all the priests of Nob because they were supposedly siding with David. One can only imagine the shockwave that went through them. To a man they refused, probably on the account of the unjustness of such a harsh sentence and because they weren't about to harm God's holy priesthood and set themselves at war with Jehovah. To deny this homicidal king could have meant death for any one of them. But enough of the fear of the Lord still remained in them that death at Saul's hand was preferable to the far-reaching wrath of God upon their heads. Of course, the pagan foreigner Dweg held no such awe or fear of Jehovah. And Saul full well knew this, which is why Dweg was in his employ in the first place. So the king says, fine, you kill the priests. Dweg wasted no time in carrying out the king's decree. It's all about patterns. Patterns. A pattern was established here in the story of the massacre of the priests of Nob that we'll see repeated 1,000 years from King Saul's time and that some of us may witness yet again in the not very distant future. A foreigner set out to kill the God-anointed and legitimate king of Israel that was divinely scheduled to replace an illegitimate king of Israel. The same thing will happen with the paranoid king Herod when he hears that God's anointed king, the Messiah, has been born and so he treats him as an unwelcome rival. Even more interesting is that Doeg and Herod were both Edomites. Although the New Testament calls Herod an Idumean, that's just Greek for Edomite. Just as Palestinian is Greek for Philistine. The anti-king, anti-Christ had a pagan henchman who somewhat masqueraded as a friend of God. His primary job was to thwart any attempt by God to remove his boss's authority and turn it over to God's anointed one. And one of the best ways to do that was to kill all of the anointed one's friends and followers. If you have ears, hear this in the process of killing the anointed one. Does that sound a little bit like the coming of the Antichrist and his false prophet who will carry out all of his dirty work? Does this mean 
that since the first two occurrences of this pattern were carried out by Edomites, the second wasn't even called Edomite, he was called Edomian, just because it was a different language, can we look for a future false prophet of the Antichrist who has an Edomite heritage? From our vantage point of today, I'd say yes, we can. We'll finish up chapter 22 and move into 23 next time.